Hello, and welcome back to Off the Deaton Path. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society, and we welcome you to this podcast for October 28th, 2021. We are broadcasting this week from the All Hallows' Eve division here at the Georgia Historical Society on the 15th floor of the Jepson House overlooking beautiful Forsyth Park in downtown Savannah. We welcome you to another season of podcast here at Off the Deaton Path, and we deeply appreciate all of you who have taken the time to listen and to provide feedback. This week is our special Halloween podcast, our fifth, dating back to 2017. Once again this year, I'll be reading one of my very favorite ghost stories. Now, you may recall we first did this in 2017 with a story called The Clock by William Fryer Harvey. Got good feedback and decided to do it again the next year. In 2018, we featured Call First by Ramsey Campbell. In 2019, I read The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. And last year, we featured famous and infamous disappearances in history. This year, I'm going to be reading one of my very favorite authors of ghost stories, M.R. James, Montague Rhodes James. But before we get to that, however, let's take a wee peek at the ever-popular This Week in History. On October 28, 1886, 135 years ago, President Grover Cleveland officially dedicated the Statue of Liberty, officially known as Liberty Enlightening the World, a gift from the people of France to the people of the United States, on Bedloe's Island, which later became Liberty Island, in New York Harbor in New York. On October 29, 1929, 92 years ago, the stock market collapsed on what became known as Black Tuesday, triggering the Great Depression, which lasted more than 10 years until the outbreak of World War II in 1941. On October 30, 1735, 286 years ago, John Adams, one of the most prominent of America's founding fathers, who would become the second president of the United States, was born in Braintree, Massachusetts. In addition to his service as president, Adams served in the Continental Congress as principal author of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, signed the Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolution, served as the first ambassador to Great Britain, and as the first vice president under George Washington. He died 90 years later on July 4, 1826, the same day as Thomas Jefferson and on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. John Adams is buried at the United First Parish Church in Quincy, Massachusetts. On October 31, 1517, 504 years ago, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, turning a protest into a scandal over papal indulgences into the religious revolution known as the Protestant Reformation. Through his words and actions, Luther precipitated a movement that reformulated certain basic tenets of Christian beliefs and resulted in the division of Western Christendom between Roman Catholicism and the new Protestant traditions, mainly Lutheranism, Calvinism, the Anglican Communion, the Anabaptists, and the Anti-Trinitarians. He is one of the most influential figures in the history of Christianity. Luther died of a stroke nearly 30 years later on February 18, 1546, at age 62, and is buried in the castle church in Wittenberg in front of the pulpit. On November 1, 1765, 256 years ago, the Stamp Act went into effect, marking the first British 
parliamentary attempt to raise revenue through direct taxation of all American colonial, commercial, and legal papers. The act met with a storm of protest in the American colonies and was eventually repealed the following March. On November 2, 1988, 33 years ago, a computer science student at Cornell University named Robert Morris, visiting MIT, released the first computer worm onto the Internet. Meant as an experiment, it brought some 6,000 computers, or about one-tenth of the Internet at that time, to a complete halt. The worm was an experimental self-propagating and replicating computer program that took advantage of flaws in certain email protocols. Because of a mistake in its programming, rather than just sending copies of itself to other computers, this software kept replicating itself on each infected system, filling all the available computer memory. Before a fix was found, the worm infected, as I mentioned, about 6,000 computers. Although Morris's worm cost time and millions of dollars to fix, the event had few commercial consequences as the Internet had not yet become a fixture of global economic life. Imagine that. It was a menacing, if overlooked, foreshadowing of things to come. Finally, on November 3rd, 2016, five years ago, after trailing in the series three games to one, the Chicago Cubs defeated the Cleveland Indians to capture the franchise's first World Series title in 108 years. The extra inning Game 7, which was interrupted by a rain delay, had started November 2nd, but went into the early hours of November 3rd. I don't have to tell you, the 117th edition of the World Series began this week between our very own Atlanta Braves and the American League champion Houston Astros. Go Braves! And that's This Week in History. One notable death to tell you about this week. As you know, I'm a big fan of the Andy Griffith Show. So we note with sadness this week the death of Betty Lynn, who played Barney's girlfriend, Thelma Lou, on the show. We never learned her name, or I should say her last name, or her occupation across all the episodes that she was in. She joined the show in Season 1, Episode 22, entitled Cyrano Andy, and she appeared in 26 episodes through Season 6, Episode 17. When Don Knotts left the show after five seasons, her character was written out of the series. By my count, there are only four members of the cast, regular or otherwise, still living. Ron Howard, of course, who played Opie, is 67. Eleanor Donahue, who played Ellie in Season 1 is 84. Maggie Peterson, who played Charlene Darling-Wash, is 80. And Rodney Dillard, who played one of the Darlings, is 79. Now, of course, Ron Howard's little brother, Clint, who played Leon, is also still alive. He appeared in just a handful of episodes. He is 62. Betty Lynn died in Mount Airy, North Carolina, Andy Griffith's hometown, on October 16, 2021. She was 95 years old. 
Long-suffering readers of my blog and listeners of this podcast know that I love a good ghost story, and I love to read them on this hot podcast uh, every Halloween. Today, I'm going to read a story from the person that I believe is the absolute master of this genre, M.R. James. Montague Rhodes James was born in Goodnestone, Kent, England in 1862, and was a British medieval scholar and provost of King's College, Cambridge, from 1905 to 1918, and of Eton College from 1918 to his death in 1936. If you've ever heard the Andy Williams' great Christmas song entitled It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, you'll recall the line about, quote, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. I always assume that line referred to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, of course, which was published early, uh, or I should say in the middle of the 19th century, but it really harkens back to an English tradition in the Victorian era, a little later, of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve, a tradition personified by M.R. James. He wrote most of his ghost stories to be read aloud to his colleagues, his family and friends on Christmas Eve. The stories were originally published in four books between 1904 and 1925, and in my opinion, and in others, they are unequaled in their perfection of the genre. He took the gothic tales of the 19th century and modernized them, placing them in contemporary British society and updated them for a 20th century audience. James was unparalleled in creating a mood that sets the perfect tone for his stories, almost all of which follow the same formula. The story is usually set in an English village, a seaside town, or a country estate, or an ancient town in Europe, or in an old church institution or university. The protagonist is usually a reserved bookish type, naive and unassuming, who somehow manages to find themselves receiving several unwanted supernatural visitations from beyond the grave, often through the discovery of an old book, map, or manuscript. And while many of the stories take place in characteristically gloomy settings, James turned many of the traditional literary devices on their collective heads. The scariest parts of many stories, like the one you'll hear today, take place in broad daylight, for instance. His most famous story is entitled, Oh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. But they're all scary and unsettling. Here's a passage from a story called Casting the Runes, and it's typical. Quote, he was in bed with the lights out when he heard the unmistakable sound of his study door opening. No light was visible. No further sound came. He decided to lock himself in his room. He put his hand into the well-known nook under the pillow, only it didn't get so far. What he touched was, according to his own account, a mouth with teeth and with hair about it, and not the mouth of a human being. M.R. James' influence on later 20th century writers of horror fiction was enormous. H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith, Stephen King, among many others, credit James with being the master of the genre. Thankfully for the modern reader, 35 of his stories have been gathered in two paperback volumes and republished by Penguin Press, edited with an introduction and notes by S.T. Joshi. The first volume is entitled Count Magnus and Other Ghost Stories, The Complete Ghost Stories of M.R. James. Volume 2 is entitled The Haunted Doll's House and Other Ghost Stories, The Complete Ghost Stories of M.R. James. They are worth every penny. You can also find his stories of, uh, on your Kindle. 
I would also highly recommend listening to his books on Audible or elsewhere. My favorite readings are by actor David Suchet, who played Agatha Christie's Poirot, and by actor Derek Jacobi. And needless to say, his stories have lent themselves to dramatizations on radio and on film, uh, and they're still being made. M.R. James died at age 73 on June 12, 1936, at Eton, and he is buried in the Eton Parish Cemetery. Today, I'm reading his short story entitled Rats, which was first published in the magazine At Random on March 23, 1929. Here, without any further ado, is the M.R. James story, Rats. And if you was to walk through the bedrooms now, you'd see the ragged, moldy bedclothes a-heaving and a-heaving like seas. And a-heaving and a-heaving with what, he says. Why, with the rats under them. But was it with the rats? I ask because in another case, it was not. I cannot put a date to the story. But I was young when I heard it, and the teller was old. It is an ill-proportioned tale, but that's my fault, not his. It happened in Suffolk, near the coast, in a place where the road makes a sudden dip and then a sudden rise. As you go northward, at the top of that rise, stands a house on the left of the road. It's a tall, red-brick house, narrow for its height. Perhaps it was built about 1770. The top of the front has a low triangular pediment with a round window in the center. Behind it are stables and offices, and such garden as it has is behind them. Scraggy scotch firs are near it. An expanse of gorse-covered land stretches away from it. It commands a view of the distant sea from the upper windows of the front. A sign on a post stands before the door, or did so stand, for though it was an inn of repute once, I believe it is so no longer. To this inn came my acquaintance, Mr. Thompson, when he was a young man on a fine spring day, coming from the University of Cambridge, and desirous of solitude in tolerable quarters and time for reading. These he found, for the landlord and his wife had been in service and could make a visitor comfortable, and there was no one else staying in the inn. He had a large room on the first floor commanding the road and the view, and if it faced east, why, that couldn't be helped. The house was well built and warm. He spent very tranquil and uneventful days, work all the morning, an afternoon perambulation of the country round, a little conversation with country company or the people of the inn in the evening over the then fashionable drink of brandy and water, a little more reading and writing, and bed. And he would have been content that this should continue for the full month he had at disposal, so well was his work progressing, and so fine was the April of that year, which I have reason to believe was that which Orlando Whistlecraft chronicles in his weather record as the, quote, charming year, unquote. One of his walks took him along the northern road, 
which stands high and traverses a wide common called a heath. On the bright afternoon when he first chose this direction, his eye caught a white object some hundreds of yards to the left of the road, and he felt it necessary to make sure what this might be. It was not long before he was standing by it, and found himself looking at a square block of white stone, fashioned somewhat like the base of a pillar, with a square hole in the upper surface. Just such another you may see at this day on Thetford Heath. After taking stock of it, he contemplated for a few minutes the view, which offered a church tower or two, some red roofs of cottages and windows winking in the sun, and the expanse of sea, also with an occasional wink and gleam upon it, and so pursued his way. In the desultory evening talk in the bar, he asked why the white stone was there on the common. "'I old-fashioned thing, that is,' said the landlord, Mr. Betts. "'We was none of us alive when that was put there.' "'That's right,' said another. "'It stands pretty high,' said Mr. Thompson. "'I dare say a sea mark was on it some time back.' "'Ah, yes,' Mr. Betts agreed. I've heard that they could see it from the boats. But whatever there was, it's fell to bits this long time. Good job, too, said a third. Twarn't a lucky mark by what the old men used to say. Not lucky for the fishing, I mean to say. Why ever not, said Thompson. Well, I never see it myself, was the answer. But they had some funny ideas. What I mean peculiar, them old chaps, and I shouldn't wonder but what they made away with it themselves. It was impossible to get anything clearer than this. The company, never very voluble, fell silent, and when next someone spoke, it was of village affairs and crops. Mr. Betts was the speaker. Not every day did Thompson consult his health by taking a country walk. One very fine afternoon found him busily writing at three o'clock. Then he stretched himself and rose, and walked out of his room into the passage. Facing him was another room, then the stairhead, then two more rooms, one looking out to the back, the other to the south. At the south end of the passage was a window to which he went, considering with himself that it was rather a shame to waste such a fine afternoon. However, work was paramount just at the moment. He thought he would just take five minutes off and go back to it. And those five minutes he would employ, the Betzes couldn't possibly object, to looking at the other rooms in the passage, which he had never seen. Nobody at all, it seemed, was indoors, probably... As it was market day, they were all gone to the town, except perhaps a maid in the bar. Very still the house was, and the sun shone really hot. Early flies buzzed in the window panes. So he explored. The room facing his own was undistinguished except for an old print of Barry St. Edmund's. The two next him on his side of the passage were gay and clean, with one window apiece, 
whereas his had two. Remained the southwest room, opposite to the last which he had entered. This was locked, but Thompson was in a mood of quite indefensible curiosity, and feeling confident that there could be no damaging secrets in a place so easily got at, he proceeded to fetch the key of his own room, and when that didn't answer, to collect the keys of the other three. One of them fitted, and he opened the door. The room had two windows looking south and west, so it was as bright and the sun as hot upon it as could be. Here there was no carpet, but bare boards, no pictures, no washing stand, only a bed in the farther corner, an iron bed with mattress and bolster covered with a bluish check counterpane. As featureless a room as you can well imagine, and yet there was something that made Thompson close the door very quickly and yet quietly behind him and lean against the window sill in the passage, actually quivering all over. It was this, that under the counterpane, someone lay, and not only lay, but stirred. That it was some one, and not some thing, was certain, because the shape of a head was unmistakable on the bolster. And yet it was all covered, and no one lies with covered head, but a dead person. And this was not dead, not truly dead, for it heaved and shivered. If he had seen these things in dusk, or by the light of a flickering candle, Thompson could have comforted himself and talked of fancy. On this bright day, that was impossible. What was to be done? First, lock the door at all cost. Very gingerly, he approached it and, bending down, listened, holding his breath. Perhaps there might be a sound of heavy breathing and a prosaic explanation. There was absolute silence. But as, with a rather tremulous hand, he put the key into its hole and turned it, it rattled, and on the instant a stumbling, padding tread was heard coming towards the door. Thompson fled like a rabbit to his room and locked himself in. Futile enough, he knew it was. Would doors and locks be any obstacle to what he suspected? But it was all he could think of at the moment. And in fact, nothing happened. Only there was a time of acute suspense, followed by a misery of doubt as to what to do next. The impulse, of course, was to slip away as soon as possible from a house which contained such an inmate. But only the day before he had said he should be staying for at least a week more. And how, if he changed plans, could he avoid the suspicion of having pried into places where he certainly had no business? Moreover, either the Betzes knew all about the inmate and yet didn't leave the house, or knew nothing which equally meant that there was nothing to be afraid of, or knew just enough to make them shut up the room, but not enough to weigh on the spirits. In any of these cases, it seemed that not much was to be feared, and certainly so far he had had no sort of ugly experience. On the whole, the line of least resistance 
was to stay. Well, he stayed out his week. Nothing took him past that door. And often, as he would pause in a quiet hour of day or night in the passage and listen and listen, no sound whatever issued from that direction. You might have thought that Thompson would have made some attempt at ferreting out stories connected with the end. Hardly, perhaps, from Betts, but from the parson of the parish, or old people in the village. But no, the reticence which commonly falls on people who have had strange experiences and believe in them was upon him. Nevertheless, as the end of his stay drew near, his yearning after some kind of explanation grew more and more acute. On his solitary walks, he persisted in planning out some way the least obtrusive of getting another daylight glimpse into that room, and eventually arrived at this scheme. He would leave by an afternoon train, about four o'clock. When his fly was waiting, and his luggage on it, he would make one last expedition upstairs to look round his own room and see if anything was left unpacked. And then, with that key, which he had contrived to oil, as if that made any difference, the door should once more be opened for a moment and shut. So it worked out. The bill was paid, the consequent small talk gone through while the fly was loaded, Pleasant part of the country, been very comfortable, thanks to you and Mrs. Betts. Hope to come back sometime. On one side, on the other, very glad you've found satisfaction, sir. Done our best. Always glad to have your good word. Very much favored we've been with the weather, to be sure. Then, I'll just take a look upstairs in case I've left a book or something out. No, don't, don't trouble. I'll be back in a minute. And as noiselessly as possible, he stole to the door and opened it. The shattering of the illusion. He almost laughed aloud. Propped, or you might say sitting, on the edge of the bed was nothing in the round world but a scarecrow. A scarecrow out of the garden, of course, dumped into the deserted room. Yes, but here amusement ceased. Have scarecrows bare bony feet? Do their heads loll onto their shoulders? Have they iron collars and links of chain about their necks? Can they get up and move, if never so stiffly, across a floor with wagging head and arms close at their sides and shiver? The slam of the door, the dash to the stairhead, the leap downstairs were followed by a faint. Awaking, Thompson saw Betts standing over him with the brandy bottle and a very reproachful face. You shouldn't have done so, sir. Really, you shouldn't. It ain't a kind way to act by persons as done the best they could for you. Thompson heard words of this kind, but what he said in reply he didn't know. Mr. Betts, and perhaps even more Mrs. Betts, found it hard to accept his apologies and his assurances that he would say no word that could damage the good name of the house. However, they were accepted. 
Since the train could not now be caught, it was arranged that Thompson should be driven to the town to sleep there. Before he went, the Betzes told him what little they knew. They says he was landlord here a long time back and was in with the highwaymen that had their beat about the heath. That's how he come by his end. Hung in chains, they say, up where you see that stone where the gallows stood in. Yes, the fishermen made away with that, I believe, because they see it out at sea and it kept the fish off, according to their idea. Yes, we had the account from the people that had the house before we come. You keep that room shut up, they says, but don't move the bed out and you'll find there won't be no trouble. And no more there has been. Not once he hadn't come out into the house. Though what he may do now, there ain't no saying. Anyway, you're the first I know on that's seen him since we've been here. I never set eyes on him myself, nor don't want. And ever since we've made the servants' rooms in the stable, we ain't had no difficulty that way. Only I do hope, sir, as you'll keep a close tongue considering how a house do get talked about. With more to this effect. The promise of silence was kept for many years. The occasion of my hearing the story at last was this, that when Mr. Thompson came to stay with my father, it fell to me to show him to his room, and instead of letting me open the door for him, he stepped forward and threw it open himself, and then for some moments stood in the doorway, holding up his candle and looking narrowly into the interior. Then he seemed to recollect himself and said, I beg your pardon, very absurd, but I can't help doing that for a particular reason. What that reason was, I heard some days afterwards, and you have heard now. And that was Rats by M.R. James, first published in 1929. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation. The hardest working engineer in show business, the czar of our Tallahassee office, as well as the captain of the GHS Volcano Surfing Team, is our very own Brendan Cannonball Krellen. Our GHS director of propaganda is Patty I Love Clowns Maher. Our GHS coordinator of classroom indoctrination is Lisa War Eagle Landers. The GHS maven of social media and library science is Sabrina Human Search Engine Saturday. The director of the GHS Russian Literature Division is Christy Maple Crisp, assisted by our writing intern Warren Pease. Our Off at Eaton Path fact checker is Ella Fino. Our GHS Accounts Payable Administrator is Imelda Checks. Our GHS Assistant to the PR Specialist is Lotta B. Essen. Our Off the Eaton Path Director of Employee Loyalty is Upton Leftus. Our Off the Eaton Path Director of Three Stooges Studies is Lee Iapoka. The GHS Grammar Consultant is I.M. Shirley Wright. Our Staff Elections Coordinator is Emmanuel Recount, and our Off the Eaton Path Martini Mixer is Olive Twist. If you have an iPhone, you can find our podcast at the App Store or on the podcast app on your phone and on Spotify. If you have an Android, look for us at Google Play. You can find out everything about the Georgia Historical Society at georgiahistory.com and the Georgia History Festival at georgiahistoryfestival.org. Be sure and like Off the Deaton Path on Facebook and Instagram as well. 
Please also visit DeatonPath.GeorgiaHistory.com and check out Dispatches from Off the Deaton Path, my blog, and similarly Better Off Dead podcasts like this one. Stay safe, stay strong. I'm Stan Deaton with the Georgia Historical Society. As always, thank you for listening and have a happy and safe Halloween.